chapter. So why don't you open up your Bibles, John chapter 20, and read along with me starting in verse 1. And we're going to read down to verse 18, covering a, a good chunk tonight. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb and the two of them were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and he did not go in. And Simon Peter also came, following him, and he entered the tomb. And he saw that the linen wrappings were lying there, and that the face cloth which had been on, the, on his head was not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple who had come to the tomb first then also entered, and he saw and believed. And for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead." And so the disciples went away again to where they were staying. But Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and so as she was crying, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? And she said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? And whom are you seeking? And thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Bow with me for just one more, one more second. Jesus, thank you for yourself and for your, your humble condescension and your incarnation, your life on earth, your sinless existence, your eternal existence, your corporeal existence your beatings, your cross, your death, your resurrection. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we have hope because of this work. Help us to understand how we have hope because of this work. Help us to understand what it is that the cross accomplished, what it is that the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension to the right hand of the Father. Lord, help us to understand by the sovereignty and power of your spirit. Communicate us to us in a way that, that no human being can, not me or any other preacher or pastor or Bible study teacher or, or professor. Lord, we need you to illuminate the eyes of our heart. So I pray that I would respectfully stand here before this crowd of people and preach only what is in your word, not my opinion, not my preference, not my ideas, that we would hear from you and you alone. Oh Lord, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Before we hop into this, I want to take a minute and back up uh, a little bit to where we were, the text that we were considering last week and, and, and some of the weeks previously. We've done this over and over again because the cross in its entirety, Jesus being arrested, Jesus, Jesus being led, the actual act of the crucifixion itself, we saw so many powerful and awesome things and I think that it's worthwhile to just 
stand here for a moment and review what some of those things were. Jesus has fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy through this entire process, not only in his active ministry, but even in what seems to be the most aggravated level, the most the most turmoil, the most tumultuous level of his humility, he still has proven that he's in control by the prophecies that he has fulfilled. We saw in chapter 18, verse 6, that whenever the 900 or so soldiers rolled up on him with sword and spear, he spoke a word and they fell down. 900 brazen, bold, muscle-bound soldiers fell to the ground at a word from the living God in human form. And he, so he, it's just proof that he let them take him. He let them arrest him. He came to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate said to him, when asked a question, Jesus remained silent, and Pilate said, do you not know who I am? I have the authority to kill you, or I have the authority to let you go. Now, listen, friends, because this is your Lord and Savior. This is your Jesus. Jesus looked in the white of Pilate's eyes and said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And we saw that in his crucifixion, the stripping of his garments. We saw, we, con- we considered in the Old Testament that Adam and Eve in their sin, chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, that the Lord condescended and made for them clothes. They, were, they had been naked. They had no idea what that was. They didn't care. They were both living by the same standard. That's God's standard, so I can trust you. I can hang out naked and it's fine. But as soon as sin entered the world, Adam and Eve couldn't trust one another because I don't know what you're capable of. You're operating from a, a rule book that I don't understand because we've lost our relationship with God. And God in his, it, I mean, immediately there's grace. They make for themselves clothes out of fig leaves and God makes for them clothes out of skins. He makes them leather garments. An amazing act of grace. But then we have in another garden, Jesus being stripped. We have one, we have, we have the beginning, the, the sin entering the world, and then we have the payment for the sin, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, being stripped, being humiliated as he goes to the cross to pay for that sins. Adam and Eve were clothed in their sin, and Jesus was stripped and humiliated, paying for our sin. And there on the cross, being in complete control of every moment, every possible prophecy that could be fulfilled, that was written, he absolutely fulfilled. He died early. It was the practice of Romans to leave people on the cross for days. It would take days for them to die, and then once they were dead, the Romans would leave them there for the vultures to eat their flesh. Jesus died in a matter of hours, and because he died, they didn't break his legs. And that might seem inconsequential. They would break the legs of these, of these prisoners hanging on crosses because crucifixion worked in such a way that you'd have to push yourself up to open up your diaphragm to get a breath, and with your legs not just broken but shattered to bits, shattered to pieces, you weren't able to push yourself up and asphyxiation would, would, would set in pretty quick and you would be dead, but Jesus was already dead. They needed to get him off the cross because the next day was a Sabbath. It was a high day, it was a Sabbath and it was Passover. And so they needed Jesus off the cross. Jesus knew that all these prophecies needed to be fulfilled. He gave up his spirit, they didn't break his legs and they pierced his side. Both of those we see in Scripture. That he, those were exact prophecies that he fulfilled. Chapter 19, verses 36 and 37. And why I bring that up is because it's important to understand that even in the midst of carnage and savagery, Jesus is in absolute control. How does that play out in your lives personally? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is in absolute control? Here at the highest pinnacle of his humiliation, where it seems like he has no control whatsoever, he's controlling everything. And I love it that still, 
Pilate has no authority over him because Pilate would have been the one to give the orders to break the legs of the men on the cross and still they don't break Jesus' legs. They disobey. It seems very Roman to me to be like, well, is he dead? I don't know. I think he's dead. Well, break his legs. Find out. But they didn't do that. No bone of his body shall be broken, Psalms 34. The Passover lamb should be a lamb that is perfect, spotless, without blemish, and their bones should not be broken. They should be left intact. And we considered last week how that psalm, Psalm 34, his bones shall not be broken, is a song that is literally playing through all of this carnage, all of this savagery, all of this malevolence and hatred and blood and torture and mutilation. The Spirit of God is still at work, and there is a song that is playing, and nobody was aware of it but Jesus. But the song that was playing was his legs shall not be broken. And we saw in scripture how bones that are intact are a sign pointing to resurrection. That resurrection is in the midst. Ezekiel 37. He prays over the valley of dry bones and they take on flesh and sinews and breath. And they become a military nation for for Yahweh. And so his bones not being broken is very important. There is resurrection in the midst of all of this carnage, and the same is true for you. Jesus' resurrection proves that there is also resurrection for us who are in him. This has everything to do with us. This isn't an isolated event that occurred 2,000 years ago that we ought to pay cursory attention to or peripheral attention to. This is the lifeblood of our very existence, what Jesus Christ is accomplishing here. So it is worth it to pay attention. His His resurrection proves everything. It proves everything. The things that he fixed, even the things that he fixed while he was dying. Remember that we looked at that last week. As Jesus is hanging from the cross, he's praying for the very people who are pinning him to that piece of wood. He saves the thief next to him, and then he provides a shelter for his mom, who Joseph, at this point, is dead. And so with Jesus dying... Jesus puts her in the care of John, not not one of Jesus' brothers, because Jesus' brothers at this point were not saved. They were not Christians. Chapter 7 makes that very clear. And so Jesus leaves his mom in the care of a believing son, a believing friend. He fixes things even as he's dying, even as he's being mutilated to death, he's making life better for other people. This is our Lord and King. But none of it matters if he doesn't rise from the dead. Every prophecy, every miracle, every healing, every act of mercy, every statement of profound wisdom, his fixing things, his forgiving, his raising others from the dead, his raising the lame to walk, his raising the lazy to action, his poise and his maturity, his wit, he could not be beat. His wit could not be bested even by the most scholarly Pharisee. His selflessness, his life, his sacrifice doesn't mean anything without the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul writes that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and our faith are in vain. Because he may have been a nice guy. He may have been a man of philanthropy. He may have been gracious. He may have been winsome. He may have even been handsome and funny. But millions of people have died defending the fact that he is God and his resurrection proved it to be so. Without the resurrection... He would have been a madman. He'd be still dead in the tomb to this day. Nothing but dust. And so because of the resurrection, everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything before the resurrection hinges on the resurrection, and everything after the resurrection hinges on the resurrection. 
And so what we're going to see tonight, in light of now post-resurrection, we're now on the opposite side of the cross. We're post-resurrection. We're going to see what life is like with Jesus risen from the dead. And this has as much to do with them as it does with us because we're living in the same period of redemptive history. Christ has risen from the dead. Amen? Amen. And so what we see in Mary and what we see in Peter and what we see in John is a lesson for us of what not to do, maybe what to do a little bit, but how we re- relate and think about our existence and how we relate and think about Jesus. We do not look here. We do not look at the terrestrial. We do not look at the corporeal. We do not look at the physical and the right, the right here and the right now. This is not our home. This is not our hope. Everything here on earth will decay and atrophy and die one by one. And so our hope is in Jesus and the resurrection proves it to be so. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, we do not look, 16, 17, 18, we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What is seen is temporal, what is unseen is eternal. His resurrection is proof of his claims, it's proof of his work, and it's also proof that his life was of such a quality that it was an acceptable sacrifice to assuage God's righteous anger towards sin. The church likes to not teach that God's mad at sin. I don't know where they get that idea. Romans 5, 9 is very clear that Jesus saved us from the wrath of God. That's what we were saved from. God hates sin. It does rob him of us, but it's also a violation of his very righteousness, and it needs to be punished, and none of us were a pure, spotless lamb. None of us can earn our way into heaven. We needed a perfect sacrifice, a perfect propitiation, and God in his mercy, his justice, his righteous justice, his judgment, yes, but, and also his mercy sent his son to be that propitiation for us. We owe everything to Jesus, and the resurrection proves it. He was an acceptable sacrifice. He is, as John 1 says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now the only weapon that the devil has against you that is lethal, the only thing that he can hold against you that has any real power is unforgiven sin. That's it. And in Jesus, that's taken care of. We're told by Paul that death is swallowed up in victory. So this is a, this resurrection Getting to the resurrection. The resurrection is a Trinitarian concept and a Trinitarian accomplishment. I want to just show here how not an accident this was. There's people that teach that the resurrection was sort of this like, oh, um, boy, sin. And God's up in heaven going, I don't know what to do about this. Uh, Let me go to the drawing board and figure something out. Before the earth began, before all time, the Lord knew, the Lord planned He knew sin was going to take place. He sent his son to be the propitiation of that sin. His incarnation and his resurrection were both works of Trinitarian, of of the Trinity. We read in Hebrews 10.5 regarding his incarnation, his coming to earth. Hebrews 10.5 says that you prepared a body for me. The, The father prepared a body for Jesus. The father was at work in the incarnation, but also Philippians 2.7 says that he himself, Jesus, taking on the form of a slave, was made in the likeness of men. Jesus humbled himself. He took on the form of a slave. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have the father, we have the son, and we have the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1, visiting Mary, the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be with child. It's okay that you're a virgin. God, that's not a problem for God. We can take care of that. This will be a pregnancy 
that is effectuated by the power of God himself. And this for the very purpose that Jesus would come by admission of his own lips to seek and to save the lost. His resurrection was also a Trinitarian work. Romans 6.4 says that as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. But Jesus also says of himself, he says, I lay down my life on my own so that I may take it up again. Romans 8.11, speaking of the Holy Spirit, says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that is the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We cannot read this stuff and not think about life differently. We may be hurting, we may be confused, we may be lost, we may be, con- we may be absolutely confounded. The people in this story today are completely confounded, but this is the truth. Process everything through this. Christ is raised from the dead. The entire, the entire power of the, tr- I mean the Trinitarian Godhead, you look at the galaxies, you look at the sun, you look at the moon, you look at how it just, the wide and incalculable, the expanse of space is, what does that mean? Well, it at least means that as big as that is, God is so much bigger than that that he kind of it all into existence. He spoke it and it was. And all of that love and all of that mercy and all of that care and all of that attention and all of that wisdom and all of that foreknowledge is pouring into you. And we learn about it right here, which is why we should be people of the word. That God that spoke black holes into existence left us a book. And for many of us, it sits at home and it collects dust. So the resurrection is no accident. The resurrection is no afterthought. The resurrection is the wisdom of God. And it's all over the Old Testament. It's, and I, I, it's in the DNA of creation itself. I would argue that creation itself is a sign pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In, in the original Hebrew, Genesis chapter 1, the tovu vavohu, the, the wild and waste that's spoken of, In Genesis 1, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep, over the wild, over the waste. And he creates, he speaks, he takes this chaos, he takes this this mayhem and he brings it to order. He brings it to function. He brings it to, to sustaining, not only itself, but sustaining life. Pointing from chaos to life, from mayhem to order. Creation itself is pointing to a resurrection. Right after the very first sin, Yahweh says to the serpent that there will be enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman and you will bruise his heel. That is, Jesus will die, but he will bruise your head. That means that in Jesus' death, he will kill death. He will kill Satan. There will be a resurrection. Right in the very first book, book of the Bible, we're already talking about resurrection. Genesis 22, Isaac and Abraham going up to the mountain. Isaac's been put on the altar. Abraham's been told to sacrifice his son as a test, and Isaac is released. Jesus was not released. Isaac, we see in Isaac's, Isaac's release a resurrection so that a substitute can be killed. Jesus is that substitute who rises from the dead. Egypt escaping out of Egypt. <laughs> Israel escaping out of Egyptian slavery, crossing the Red Sea. We see resurrection, we see new life, we see new hope. Noah's Ark, the entire world wiped out except for eight people. We see a renewal, we see new hope, 
we see new life. And Jesus even said of Jonah in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said, as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. We see resurrection all through the Old Testament. We see it effectuated in the New Testament. And so here we are at the great day, 2,000 some years ago, with this woman who comes to the tomb early. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. The, it says the first day of the week. So this is, just, so this is just sort of so you know. The Old Testament Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a day of remembering, a, a, a day of honoring the completion of creation. God worked for six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested, and he said, you will do likewise. The modern church holds Sabbath on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, not because we are thinking about creation, but because we're thinking about resurrection. Jesus was killed on a Friday. He was in the grave on Saturday, and he raised on a Sunday. So for them, what is the first day of the week, a Sunday, Mary comes to the tomb. And we're told that she comes early. We're told in Mark chapter 16 that she comes very early. Check out the courage on this woman. We're told from the other synoptic gospels that it was very early. Mark 16, that a Roman guard had been put in place in front of the tomb, Matthew 27, and that there had even been an earthquake, Matthew 28. And still, despite all of these things, Mary comes alone at night, but while it's still dark, to the tomb of Jesus. And this just speaks to his humility. We're told that she comes bringing spices in Luke's gospel, which means that she, come, she came to probably finish the job of caring for his body. Something was most likely left undone, but they kind of had to be over it because the sun was setting. They had to be done before Sabbath. And so Jesus in his humility didn't even get a full proper burial, but all the same, he is wrapped up in the linen and the stone is rolled in front of the tomb, but now the stone is rolled away. She comes in amidst all of this, but there also would have been, this is the time of Passover. And remember the very beginning of the story of Jesus, there was no room at the inn. Well, that was common. There were so many thousands of people that flooded Jerusalem during the Passover week that rooms would be, there would be no vacancy. And so people would be scattered around the area of Jerusalem, sleeping under any tree or hedge that they could find. And so Mary is crawling through these people. She's walking by in the night alone, surrounded by strangers to a tomb that's, as far as she knows, guarded by Roman soldiers to come pay respects to Jesus. And we're going to see how that, how that love uh, manifests in a little bit. So she's coming alone. I just want us to see that she's brave. I just want us to see that she is tough and that no matter what is in her way, she's coming even to the body of Jesus. And so she ran, oh, and so she saw that the stone had already been rolled away and so she ran away from the tomb and she came to Simon Peter and the other, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John himself, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord from the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. The we there, we don't know where they've laid him. There were, there were other women with Mary when she, uh, that met her there at the tomb, but uh, we read about that in the Synoptic Gospels. She came, the ladies came behind her, and then Mary seems to leave alone and run to let Peter and John know what's going on. And it's, this is an interesting detail because someone might ask the question, you know, what happened to Peter after that famous denying Jesus three times in a row thing? Where did he go? What happened? Did he go to the pub? 
Did he go hang out with, like, what do you do after that? Well, it seems like he was with John. It seems like he spent the night with John. John took him in. And his moment of <laughs> great humiliation, his, his own humiliation, he went back to his buddy John. We're told in Luke chapter 5, not only were John and Peter disciples of Jesus for three years, but even before Jesus showed up on the scene and called them, they were business partners in the fishing trade. They'd known each other for years. And John's quite a young man, something that he was even maybe 18 or 19 years old at this time, but him and Peter had known each other for years. And so he's with John. And remember who else is with John? As he's dying on the cross, Jesus sees John there and he says, son, behold your mother. Mary is with John. So Mary Magdalene runs to Peter and John and no doubt Mary is there as well and says that the body is gone. They've taken him. Who's, he's, who's they? Uh, well, grave robbery is the most likely option. Uh, that was something that was common back then. And after all, I mean, hey, this is, remember, this is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We read that in the last chapter. He was a rich man. This is, and, the, you know, that guy, Jesus, I've heard is in there. They could have buried him with some loot. So it's not really far-fetched to think that when she saw the stone rolled out of the way that she assumes that grave robbers have moved the stone, no telling what's happened to the Roman soldiers in this gospel, but she thinks that maybe somebody they have taken away the body, most likely people who are grave robbing. And so the boys put on their shoes and they run. Nobody knows what's going on. The boys hear what Mary says. Mary says they've taken his body. No one, it seems as if nobody is remembering that Jesus said, I will rise again. I'll be in the tomb for three days. I will rise again. No doubt they heard him say the words, but they, do, they did not hear what he said. You know what I mean? We do that in the church today. We hear the words spoken, but we don't hear what's been said. We read the words in scripture, but we don't listen. We don't comprehend. We don't pause and think. Peter especially, I mean, he got tuned up. He got in Jesus' face and said, this is never going to happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. How much is that true? And that's what I love about this passage is that it's showing us to not do that. It's showing us to not listen to ourselves, to not listen to our own opinions or preferences, but to believe what the Bible says. We can feel our emotions, we can feel our doubts, we can express them, we can pray them. I mean, shoot, that's what the entire Psalms is all about. People crying out in agony to the Lord, but they're praying. Mary and John and Peter heard, but they weren't listening. And so the, the boys put on their shoes and they run. They run toward the tomb. And Peter and the other disciple went forth, verse 3, and they were going to the tomb. And as the two were running together, the other disciple ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. <laughs> uh, some people say that the reason why John puts this in here is to just humble brag. He's like, I ran faster than Peter did. Uh, and you know what? Maybe. I doubt it, but it could be. Some say that it, what's happening here is that Peter is thinking, well, if it's possible that what Jesus said is true and he's risen from the dead, I'm in trouble. Because he told me that the rooster would crow three times before I denied him, and it, and it before I denied him three times, and it and it did. That happened, and so he's he's running, but he's sort of running with that like, I'm hurrying, but I'm not hurrying. I'm not really in a rush to get there. But when he gets to the tomb, it says that he just bolted in, and so I don't I don't think that that's true. In all likelihood, John was younger, and he was faster, and he put that in there as just sort of like a, 
Maybe. I don't know. So they're running together. John gets to the tomb first. Now check this out. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. He doesn't go in, but he stoops and he looks. He saw, the, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and then Simon Peter shows up, and he entered the tomb, Peter, right? No bedside manner, no couth, just a belligerent, impetuous fisherman just bulldozes right into the tomb, and he also sees the linen wrappings lying there in the face cloth, verse 7, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, now John, now comes into the tomb, and when he entered, he also saw, and he believed. Now, here's one of these technical things, that if you were stranded alone on a desert island, and you didn't have any commentaries, you didn't have any Greek lexicons, you didn't have any uh, Bible study tools whatsoever, you just had the Bible itself, you may not catch this. And you may not realize that this is going on until you die and meet Jesus. And it, it's okay. It doesn't really matter. This is not a, a, a real issue of any serious depth. But it is interesting. And since we do have commentaries and lexicons and pastors who have lived long before us and they study the language, it's, it's, it's fun and it's interesting. It's cool to look at this breakdown because we see three times in verse 5 and 6 and 8 the word saw. John came and he saw Peter came in and he saw, and then John came in and he saw. In the original Greek, all three of those words are different. They convey a different idea. John gets there, and, he's, and he doesn't look in. Now, remember, it's still probably at least somewhat dark outside, and then you have a hole in a rock where it's pitch black. So we don't really know what John can exactly see, but the word used here is the word blepo, and it means to, to basically gaze. Like, he, he's, he's looking at what's going on, and it doesn't really go any further than that. He's just looking. Peter comes in, and he goes inside the tomb. And the word for saw there, he comes in and saw the linen wrappings, and the word there is theoreo. It's, it's, it's to theorize. It's to, it's to scrutinize. It's to stop and look and think. Peter sees something, and it doesn't make sense. Peter can see clearly enough from the inside of the tomb that he's starting to put dots together because what he's seeing and what should be there, Jesus' body doesn't seem to be gone. There's all these wrappings, but, but he's thinking, right? He's starting to wonder about what it is that he's exactly looking at. Verse 7, the face cloth which had been on his head was not lying with the linen wrappings but folded up into place by itself. The head covering on Jesus, the linen wrappings weren't on his head anymore, but his head wasn't there. What's going on here? Now, a lot of, there's commentators that have basically landed on two, two possibilities of what's going on here. One is that possibly Jesus rose from the dead tied up in his linen wrappings. Remember, there's a hundred pounds of spices that he was buried with, and the amount of linen wrappings to hold a hundred pounds of spices would have been a lot of linen wrappings. So he, he came to, he resurrected, however that looked. We have no witnesses to the actual rising of Jesus, and he unwrapped himself. It's possible, but I lean more towards he just disappeared, and what was left was this sort of cocoon of linen wrappings. And there's some commentators that point out that the spices that they used to wrap bodies in Jewish culture, when they sat long enough, tied up tight in the linen, that they would actually congeal together like pitch. And that this, uh, these linen wrappings on Jesus' body would become almost like a cast. When you break your arm, it would have become hard. And to get someone out of it, you would have almost had to have cut them out of it, or at least ripped the linen apart. And so 
what Peter sees here most likely is a partially deflated, orderly set of wrappings. This doesn't make sense. No one took his body. No one unwrapped him. If they would have done it, they wouldn't have taken the time to make it nice and neat. They wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap him at all. If you're trying to steal something, I just watched a video because I just sometimes watch these things because they pop up and I can't look away. But it was a guy who was stealing plasma TVs from some, I don't know, Fred Meyer or something. And he didn't take the time. They caught him on camera. They couldn't do anything except pretty much watch him go, of course. But he didn't take the time to take the TVs out of the box. You know, he just grabbed the box, he put it in his minivan, and he took off, three of them. You're not going to take the time to unwrap Jesus if you're trying to get in and out in a hurry. So Peter sees and he's going, this doesn't make any sense. They've taken his body, Mary said, but no, no, his body's not here, but the linen wrappings are. And there's, they're neat and orderly. Peter's thinking, what's going on here? We have no idea about Jesus' body. I don't, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. But one day we will know because Scripture promises us that when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will see what he is like, and we will also be like him. We're told this very exciting verse in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in a corruptible body. It is raised incorruptible. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. All through the synoptics, even in John, we see these weird things about Jesus' resurrected body. He eats fish, but then he walks through walls. People see him. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, those two guys spent a good amount, a good amount of time with him on the road, and they didn't recognize him. But then it says that he, he ate supper with them. He blessed the meal, and, his, and then they recognized that it was Jesus, and then he vanishes. The word that's used is vanishes. So it seems that he can appear, he can disappear, but he can eat. He shows up in a room with locked doors in, in John chapter 20. Like, what's, what's going on here? Verse 19, so while it was evening on the first day of the week, while the doors were shut, the disciples were there for fear of the Jews, and Jesus just came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. I don't know what Jesus' body is like, but it sounds cool, and friends, we're on our way there. For as yet, John comes in. So this third word, verse 8, the other disciple who came in now sees and believes. This is John. This word, harao, means to perceive and to understand. John came in. He saw what was going on. He looked at the linen. And Peter's still scratching his chin. And John went, I get it. I get it. I see what's happening here. He believed. Verse 8, what did he believe? Well, he believed that, that Jesus raised from the dead. In John chapter 2, after the cleansing of the temple, there's this weird statement that's made that makes sense now. Jesus clears out the temple and the religious authorities say to him, by what authority do you do these things? What sign do you show? And Jesus said, I will destroy this sanctuary in three days. I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it's taken 46 years to build this sanctuary and you'll raise it up in three days. But, verse 21, he was speaking about the sanctuary of his bodies. Verse 22, and when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and, he re and they remembered and believed the scripture 
and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now they're starting to get it. Now they're starting to believe. Jesus is raised from the dead. John comes into the room and he sees what has happened. He understands it and he believes. Verse 9, for as yet they had not understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Up until this point they hadn't understood. I like the way that the New Living Translation states this. It, 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 it translates this, for until then they had not understood. So they get it. Previously, they didn't understand Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. Was he speaking in a parable? Was he speaking literally? They were, they were kept from understanding. But now, in the tomb of Jesus, they see and they believe. And so verse 10, they do the most natural thing. He's not there. He's not in the tomb. Stop looking in the tomb. Stop looking in the past. Stop looking at what's right here. They went up back to where they were staying and no doubt told Mary, hey, uh, <laughs> Jesus isn't there, but those linen wrappings still are. Uh, I think he's raised from the dead. But Mary, Mary at some point has come back. She went and she told Peter and John. They ran ahead of her and now she's back and she's there by herself. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she was crying, she stooped and she looked into the tomb. Her crying shows and her looking shows, uh, it betrays her love for Jesus. She's weeping over the death of Jesus. She doesn't know what's happened. They've taken his body. She doesn't know what's going on and so she's crying because she loves the Lord. She loves Jesus, but her faith isn't quite caught up yet because the tomb being empty should cause her to rejoice, right? She should look in the tomb and see that it's empty and go, oh, well, Jesus said this. And you know what? I, let me just go on a personal rant for a minute. The guys that I read, and maybe some of you have experienced this, the old dead guys, the commentators that I read, they're always picking on people in the New Testament. Oh, she should have had more faith. Oh, her faith was weak. Oh, those, those dumb fishermen. Look, <laughs> let's have a little bit of grace here. You know, there's a couple of guys up at the pearly gates. I'm going to be like, you know, man, you're, you're an exegesis on John. Like, good work, but take it easy on some of these people. You know, like, be, be nice. Look at how brave she is. She just, she just, earthquake doesn't stop her. Roman guards doesn't stop her. She shows up, she's crying over, she doesn't get it yet, sure. But isn't that a human experience? We see that throughout the God. When Lazarus dies, his sisters are confounded, they're confused, but they run to Jesus, they fall at his feet, they at least run to him. They at least run to him. She's crying, she feels this great love for Jesus, but her faith hasn't quite caught up. Very real human place to be. But notice what she's looking at. She's looking in the tomb. And this again, she wasn't expecting. She's looking in the tomb. It's not making sense. She was expecting a dead Jesus. We're told in Luke chapter 24 that when she came, she brought spices, right? She was expecting to continue to show honor to his body by doing some ceremonial burial practice. She's expecting a dead Jesus. She's looking in the tomb. And I, and I wonder tonight if there are some of you here who are looking in some sort of tomb are you looking at what is around you and not looking up are you looking at your bank account are you looking at the illness are you looking at I just prayed with a young guy this morning who came to me specifically because he knows that my dad died of cancer because his mom 
has just been diagnosed with cancer. And it's tragic. It's a horrifying thing. It really is. And I can't ever, and I say this again and again, I can't tell you why some illness or tragedy is going to touch your life. I don't know. But friends, everything that we've looked at for the last several weeks, everything that, we, that proves to us that Jesus is in control even when he is at his weakest, do you trust him with what's going on? Because what I, what, we can yell and we can scream and we can fight and we can kick the psalm, read the psalms. It's full of that. It's full of that. You can feel your feelings. It's okay. Talk about them. Pray about them. Pray with each other. Pray to the Lord. He welcomes that. He is a father after all. But don't come to the conclusion. My fear is this. Don't come to the conclusion because something has touched your life, some death, some mutilation, some savagery has touched your life. And the conclusion that you come to is, well, Jesus is dead or he doesn't care or he's a jerk. His tomb is empty. What are you looking at? What are you believing? I've said this many times, and I'll continue to say it many times. When my dad was dying in the, in the hospital, my emotions were raging. I, my, my heart was telling myself, see, God doesn't have, your, doesn't, have any, he doesn't have anything to do with this. He's not paying attention. There's no resurrection. There's no inheritance. The cross doesn't really matter. Your dad's dead, and that's it, and you're right behind him. That's what my emotions were telling me. Now, I could feel him. And I could express them. I called friends and I let them know well, that's how I was feeling. And what I was reminded is you can feel them, don't believe them. You can express them, don't submit to them. Submit to this. Submit to Jesus. Believe him. Believe his word. His bones were not broken because even in the midst of that savagery, there was a song playing of resurrection. Before Jesus even came to earth, there was a song playing of resurrection. And someday, friends, we will all get caught up in it. Jesus will return or we will experience death and we'll go. But resurrection is ours in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen? The tomb is not where we should look. We can cast a gaze there, but let's live in the Gospels. Let's live in Scripture. Let's live praying to the resurrected and living Lord so she comes to the tomb and she looks in and she's crying. And she sees two angels. I, I love this. She saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus' body had been laying. And they said to her, woman, why are you crying? There's, there's no reason to cry, as we'll see. Why are you crying? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she said this, she turned around. I love this. Mary, it's a, it's a slight detail. It's, it, you read right over it, but it, it's, it's right there in front of you. She's so focused on Jesus. She's so in love with Jesus. She's so after Jesus that she sees these two angels and is just kind of like, what's up? I'm looking for my Lord. And she doesn't care that these, there's these two angels right there. And then she turns, listen, to this, verse 14, she turns her back on them. Where is Jesus? Why are, you, why are you crying? And she just turns her back on angels. Like, what a gangster. She's after Jesus, right? She's after Jesus. She sees these two angels there, and she turns around. And when she turned around, turns her back on these angels, she sees, she sees Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, there's speculation all over this. Could she not recognize him because it was dark and she had tears in her eyes? Does, it, were, was she being supernaturally prevented from recognizing him? Was there some 
was there some easy explanation? Did she just not, was he wearing something over his head? Did he have his face partially covered? Did he just look different? We're not told. But the point, the point, we'll see here in a second. Why was he not recognized? We're not exactly sure. But he said to her, woman, why are you crying? And whom are you seeking? And thinking him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. I love, I love her tenacity here. She thinks that, I mean, no, like nobody can just pick up a 175-pound body that's wrapped in 100 pounds of spices and just drag him away. But she's like, but I'll do it. But I'll do it. Just tell me where he is. I love it. She's just gung-ho. She's after her Lord. She doesn't understand yet who she is talking to. Verse 16, but Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned around and she said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. In the midst, and friends, this is not hocus pocus. This is not weird mystical jargon. This is the truth of the cosmos. This is the truth of the universe. In your anguish, in your pain, I don't know what's going on. There are some people in this church, there's a number of people in this church, I do know what's going on. They've shared with me the tribulation that they have come under in, in, in varying degrees and in varying ways. For Mary, Jesus was right there. She didn't, she didn't get it. She didn't get it yet. She didn't see him. He was right there. And friends, he's, he's right here. Colossians tells us that if you're born again, if you're a Christian, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You've been born again. The Holy Spirit is living inside of you, a seal guaranteeing the salvation that is to come. It may, it, he, he may not manifest. We may not understand him in a way that we would prefer, but let's, let's humble ourselves. Let's forget about the fact that we're writing the narrative here because we're not and come to Jesus on his own terms. And friends, being in the scripture is one of the best ways to understand Jesus, to understand his will and to actually feel his presence in your life is to be communing with him in his literal word. Mary, in her angst, Jesus was right there. And it, there's something in his voice. He says her name. Notice it's, it's when he says her name, there's something in her voice and she recognizes who he is. Something in her voice made the scales from her eyes fall off. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me. And I love this. He said her name. There will come a time, friends, when Jesus will wipe away every tear from your eye. Your, your sadness, your questions, your confusion will be obliterated, eviscerated, and done away with by the very presence of Jesus with his Lips saying your name personally, you. We're promised that. The Bible has lots to say about our names. Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, we read this. Speaking of the holy city, the new heavens and the new earth, nothing defiled, no one who practices any abomination or lying shall come into it, that is the city, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He is simultaneously directing shooting stars, and he knows your name. He knows you. Your name is on his lips. Revelation 20, verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, that 
That's what Jesus saved us from. That's what churches don't preach. Churches. There is a hell. And this is what Jesus came to save us from. That punishment, that wrath. He knows your name. He puts it in the book of life. In the gospel of, of Luke, Jesus sends his disciples out uh, on, on mission. <clears throat> and they come back from their missions trip and many of them are very excited about what's happened. They've had a lot of success. They cast out demons. They had powers and, and, and they come to Jesus and they say, listen, J Jesus, look, listen to all these things that we did. And Jesus said to them, I, I, I gave you power to tread on serpents and to cast out demons, but don't, don't rejoice in this. Don't rejoice in the fact that you have this power. Don't rejoice in the fact you have this authority or that demons are subject to you. He says this, rejoice in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Friends, beyond our control, beyond our meddling and our scheming, by the work of Jesus, by his blood, by his perfection, by his righteousness, we put our faith in him and our names are written in heaven permanently. My sheep hear my voice they follow me and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Absolutely nothing. Jesus knows Mary's name and if you're here tonight and you are a believer in Jesus, you are born again, he knows your name. He has it written down. It is on his lips. So in closing, Jesus said to her, she, she realizes it's Jesus most likely she dropped to her knees and grabbed him by his feet and he says, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Stop clinging to me. Why? Stop clinging to me. It's a really interesting thing to say. Well, our, our relationship to Jesus is not physical. We live by faith, not by, not by sight. Jesus is saying, I, I have risen from the dead, like I said. I'm here standing before you, but this isn't the end of the story. I'm going to ascend. Notice that he says, go tell my brothers that I ascend, not I resurrected. Don't go and tell them I've risen. Tell them that I have not yet ascended to the Father because that's the next step. That is, that is absolutely going to happen. Jesus said that he is going to go to a place where no one can follow and that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be with us and he would not leave us as orphans. And this is the church age that we're living in now. Jesus is here across the entire globe in the presence of his Holy Spirit through individual believers from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. Mary, I love you, but let go of me. I'm not sticking around. And go tell my dudes that the same is true for them. I have not yet ascended. I'm going to ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. That is the beauty of the cross. We are not just forgiven our sins and then led off into the wilderness like the scapegoat of the Old Testament to wander around aimlessly without a watering hole or a home. My God and your God my father and your father. We're on the same playing field as Jesus. We are not sons and daughters of God the same way that Jesus is, but we are welcome into the, into the family home. We are welcome at the table. The Bible says that if we have been raised with Christ, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We get the inheritance, 1 Peter 1, an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, and unfading. 
Your names are written in the book. Your names are written in heaven. The relationship that we have now is through faith, not through works, not through merit, not through performance. Jesus, as we've just seen, has done all of that for us. Amen? Amen.